Good morning. You can find a seat. We'll get started. Thank you very much for coming out on a Saturday morning. We got a good crowd here. That's great. We're looking forward to learning. I know we've all heard that word unprecedented a lot. In fact, the more we use it, the less convinced I am. But uh, we have learned that things can change in pretty dramatic ways. And when things change like that, our thoughts do go to the prophets. And so we are kind of getting ready today for a sermon series starting tomorrow in the book of Revelation. But we want to step back and take a look at the genre of the prophets in apocalyptic literature. And uh, Randy is going to take us into that. Now, I just want you to know that we searched and searched for months to find the most comfortable chairs for this, for this auditorium, okay? It took us a long time, but we're really pleased. Now, we are renovating. We're renovating, and new seating is on its way. So I, I know that these are not the most comfortable chairs in the world. Um, so we are going to take breaks, just so you know that. Uh, to get to stand up and but if you can't wait for the break and you need a little break you feel free to stand up It's comfortable and casual. You can also turn your chairs a little bit if you're on the ends or the sides kind of towards the stage Make yourself as comfortable as possible if you're like I just can't take this metal chair anymore There are a few padded folding chairs down here uh, that you uh, while while supplies last uh, you can have one of those uh, there is, by the way, uh, make sure that you got a bottle. There's water in the courtyard. You can go get the nice, cold, chilled water in the courtyard. And there is also a little pamphlet of notes uh, for each of the three sessions this morning available in the courtyard. So if you didn't get that, you can uh, run out and get those at any time. There are bathrooms. If you go out the back to the right, down that hallway, there are restrooms. And then uh, this hallway behind, if you go out through the courtyard and into your right down the hallway there are restrooms in that direction and um, so I think that covers the basic announcements come join me Dr. Smith all right so um, six feet apart that's right. well. join me over there uh, Randy or Randall I'm always like what should I call you I know it's it's Dr. Smith but which which do you go by Randall is what I use um, when my mom calls and I'm in trouble, when my wife calls and I'm in trouble, or when I'm in Europe, because Randy is a slang term that we won't talk about. So it's Randy. Hey, everyone say, welcome, Randy. Welcome, Randy. All right. Tell us a bit about your family. I have a dear wife who I can't believe has put up with me. I've dragged her all over the earth, and uh, she is currently in uh, just south of uh, Asheville, North Carolina, in a house that we've been flipping for the last 75 days, just for something to do during COVID, you know, keep yourself busy. Um, but she's been doing that. Uh, I have three children. Um, my oldest is in the central Florida. My next one down is my son, and he's heading for a, to help a ministry get started in West Virginia. And then I have a daughter who is uh, wheelchair bound. She is a mama and uh, her and her husband live in central Florida, but will be moving to the house that we are flipping and renovating. Okay. All right. 
Now, I, I had heard a lot about you, but I really met you and got to know you on a trip to Israel. I'm sorry. No, no, it's great. It was wonderful. A highlight. A highlight. Um, but you actually lived in Israel for 13 years. What was that all about? What were you doing? I had the joy of having all of my first loves in my life. And my, my wife would refer to Israel as the other woman in my life. Um, I went there as a student back in 79, 80, and then picked up a job there working in archaeology and history, and then came back and forth working on my master's, my doctoral work, and then went back and started the com a company to basically do how to, standing on this spot, help you understand these verses better. That's what we're doing. And that company developed first in Israel, went to Jordan, then Egypt, then Turkey, then Greece, then Italy. And so in the last several years, although I've lived in the States, I share that with about six months in the States and six months be cut between Israel and Italy. Okay, so that's what Christian Travel Study Programs is about. You want to say anything more about that? That was an opportunity so that people that live here um, and are opening their Bible but leaving the context of their world could go with me and I could show them long ago in a real place it looked like this, functioned like this. And part of that was just to say, when Paul's writing, he's writing to people on the Roman street, what's that like? What does it look like, feel like? How do you, how, when you're knocking around, so that the imagery that becomes so much embedded in the scriptures, it's, it's obvious. You're starting to go, oh, oh, well, that's what he's talking about. And so most of it's been that. Yeah. Hey, how many of you have been uh, on a trip with Randy? Oh, look at that. Uh -oh. Okay, that's, a, that's, a, that's quite a few. And if you haven't, I encourage you to think about it. We're looking forward to the day when those trips will begin. Of course, pastoring has been a big part of your life. Tell us about that. It, I believe that God's work is primarily designed through the local church into the family to change the nation. And so my address, while other people get involved in political movements, I get involved in local church. And my concern is how do we tool up the next generation to take a timeless truth and message and move the methodology to whatever we need it to be? Because no matter what happens in November, no matter what happens with COVID, our message doesn't change and our mandate is the same. So the issue isn't how easy it's gonna be, the issue is I still gotta do it. And how do I do it? So the pastoral role for me has morphed. Um, when I went to um, Central Florida and I got to Sebring, I never intended to pastor. I intended to start the Great Commission Bible Institute. But uh, when the pastor resigned that next week, I, w I was asked to speak in the pulpit and never got out for 20 years. <laughs> uh, so in the end, what ended up happening is I just, um, I developed a replace yourself from day one kind of ministry. And now, primarily what I do is pastor pastors, and I do a mentoring by phone each week for a series of pastors, go over their messages, talk through their understanding of the text, and then talk about their schedules and what issues they're facing. Because pastors don't have someone to talk to that's actually sat in the chair often, and they feel alone, and they're not. And I believe isolation is the devil's tool. Well, I feel like the preaching and teaching has started, <laughs> so I, bet, I better hand it on over. We are so thankful that you are with us, Randy, and yeah, we're actually going to get to get uh, a little shepherded and mentored by you uh, over the next three hours, and uh, before I hand it over, let's pray, and I also want to just thank uh, all of you who are joining us online. 
Uh, I know there are quite a few people uh, who have joined us, so thank you for listening in. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your unfailing love, for your grace and mercy and kindness. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. You've poured your heart out to us through the prophets. And, and a lot of that is, is um, uh, uh, talks about your love, but, but also there's wrath. And, and we need to see you for who you are and allow your word and your truth to challenge and convict us. And I pray that you would use your servant, Randy, in your word, uh, by the power of your spirit, to do a good work in our hearts and minds. We, we need to hear from you. Please speak to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I am honored and blessed that you're here. And I have to tell you that we are living in what has to be the most strange time that any of us can ever remember on the planet. I don't care how long you've been here. I don't care how old you are. This is the weirdest year you've ever seen. Can I get an amen? It's true, isn't it? Now, I believe that great leaders are neither sour pessimists nor blind optimists. I think there's got to be realism in what we're looking at, and what we're looking at doesn't look good for the home team. However, I don't believe that it's sufficient, having worked now with 17 years of collegiate, uh, wonderful killer kamikazes that I love, I, I, I have seen this. They go home from Bible teaching from Great Commission Bible Institute. They go back to their home church during the uh, uh, December break, and they come back depressed. Because the line that they feel they're getting from my generation is, well, it's bad, and it's going to get worse, and then Jesus comes. So we have to suffer, suffer through the veil of tears, and then heavenly bliss will open. We sound medieval. We sound like we're in the 12th century. And the problem is that right in this room, there are two totally different approaches to COVID-19, two totally different approaches to the world that will be 20 years from now. For some of you, you are all ready to sign off to Jesus and get out of here with what you've got left. Because you're honestly going, I, I'm, I'm standing there and I'm watching a news broadcast as a news broadcaster is standing in front of a burning building uh, with a guy throwing a Molotov cocktail behind him describing to me the peacefulness of the protest. And I'm going, is this Saturday Night Live? Like, what am I watching right now? This is a little bizarre. Everybody with me? So, so what my eyes are seeing and what my ears are hearing is non sequitur in my mind. And I'm going, what is going... So for some of us, we we are doing what I would call the Jeremiah syndrome. Read 52 chapters of Jeremiah and you will be convinced the man needed bromide. You will think, what is wrong with him? But it's because you're watching 50 years of the disintegration of his culture in front of his eyes in 52 chapters. So you sit down in an afternoon's reading and you think, Jerry, go get a bromide and lay down. What is your problem? God is still on the throne, and his problem wasn't that God wasn't still on the throne. It's that Judah was becoming a cesspool and was about to get, have its clock cleaned. And then you'll understand what many of us feel like when we spend an hour on Facebook. What, what's wrong with these people? Have we lost our minds? So some of us are looking and most of our window of life on this planet and our contribution is past 
the number of days in front of us is shorter than the number of days behind. And so we are clinging to the world that was. And we are worried. And for many pastors I'm dealing with, they honestly believe three months from now we'll get us something you can stick in your arm, we'll get the churches full, and we'll get back on track. Because they're kind of walking through life with this daze, thinking if we could just get it back to what we had. Then there's a younger set amongst us the demographic usually follows the age, but it doesn't have to. And they're the people that are going, look, giving me a message that, sorry, you were born too late for the good America, this is the one you get, is not exactly inspiring to my generation, and I don't know how I'm supposed to go out there and build churches with that as a message. I've lived my life as part of my generation, but primarily focused on teaching the next generation. It makes me an optimist. Because honestly, if you'd have known how hard parenting was, you probably wouldn't have done it. And if you'd have known how hard it would be to get in and start a ministry and build it over decades, you probably wouldn't have done it. But young, ambitious, you'll throw yourself at that wall and you'll leave a dent on your head and throw yourself back at it a second time. Thank God for blissful ignorance. Because it's how things get done. If you knew it was going to be tough, you wouldn't do it. So I, I came today to sort of set up apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, but I want to do it without the grousing that often goes with apocalyptic literature. It's pretty hard to read through the minor prophets and come away going, I am lifted in Jesus today. But there's an essential piece. Guys, a third of the biblical material relates to the wrath of God. And we don't want to talk about it. Because it's not popular and it's not fun. And the question I always have is when you leave an ingredient out, what did you do to the recipe? What happens to the end product? So I want to talk about a portion of scripture that honestly is a little different than what we're used to talking about. Now, we are dealing with the prophets, and I want to just do a quick survey, and then I want to deal with some of the specifics of it. But in doing that, I, I'm here to set up the coming studies for the apocalyptic study for Revelation. And as we study apocalyptic literature, there's a few problems we have to own before we can get very far into it. And the first one is neglect. When it comes to the systematic teaching in the church circles, the major and minor prophets are not usually well attended. I commend you because I can't believe they actually told you what we were going to talk about and you came anyway. It's a little unusual. Um, somehow we've gone through about 25 years after the prosperity doctrine decimated a lot of our strength through the Nuthetic Counseling Meets Jesus kind of uh, propositional psychology that has become expositional Bible teaching. And so when we actually get down to the hard stuff of the scriptures, people bail pretty quickly. And there's a reason. The directness of the prophets and the cryptic language of the prophets often leads to a sound of harshness in our ears. And if we've been told anything in modernity, it is that in contemporary language, you always have to be soft. It's the only right way to do things. So hard fathering of the 50s became the problem of the 80s that led to the counseling of the 2000s. 
And that's the kind of paradigm we've just been given. Some people believe that whatever can't be lived out today is impractical. So every study Bible you will buy is rushing to get from what Obadiah said to, and here's how you can put this into practice on Monday at the office. But in a rush to make it practical, we stopped asking what it was he was saying and why was he saying it. And it's my belief that the power is in the text. Uh, if you're not on my page, you don't have to be, but I'm going to tell you that my presuppositions are God is that, there is, that we are not a confluence of random uh, 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 cells that came in the universe by itself, that God is and that God spoke and we know what he said. And that in the revealed truth of God, God had a specific purpose for what he was sharing for us. And he did not choose us so that we could simply be trophies of his grace that were static. But you, I chose you that you would go and bear fruit. There was a purpose to our time on the planet. So let me say this in the beginning. God chose you for COVID-19. He said, now is your time, this is your place, develop ministry with this timeless truth. I know that what used to be a stroll has become a climb, doesn't matter, get it done. And with that in mind, I notice that people neglect because the application of truth is always important, but, but they don't want to have to necessarily do the work. I'm with many, many pastors, and I say, tell me the story of Ezekiel. And the only thing they can get to are wheel, wheels and weirdness. Because, you know, 390 days laying on your left side is not what you'd call compelling. How do I apply that? I got housewives with unruly kids. What do you want me to preach from this? As if the God, uh, the God of heaven gave us a Bible strictly for street preachability. But what he said when Paul wrote to Timothy was study to show yourself an approved workman that need not be ashamed. Without being overtly critical, can I humbly submit that some people ought to be ashamed of what's passing as preaching? Because they haven't done the work. You, you need to ask the questions behind the text. Now, besides that, there's a problem of disconnection. There's a lot of people that think the God of the Old Testament's the one on the left and the God of the New Testament's the one on the right. That the harsh-sounding, fire-breathing dragon of Obadiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah got nice when Jesus showed up. And somehow, uh, the grace flooded in in the Gospels. As if instruction with penalty is somehow unduly harsh and should be avoided at all costs. Now, I've been rehabbing a house, so you're looking at the electrician, the plumber, the carpenter, the roofer. I'm him, okay? Can I just tell, tell you, when you read a warning installing the uh, main electrical box in the house, you don't want to look at it as gentle guidelines for friendly, helpful hints. You want to know, touch that, and I'm going to blow a hole right through you. Knowing where power is and what it can do is absolutely essential to surviving the process. And I'm going to argue that a third of the biblical content is to say this, there's real power in those lines, you don't want to touch that one. 
If you feel that you need guidelines, that's fine. But there are times when God says, that's the fence, touch it, and you will get fried. If that's offensive to you, you're going to have a hard time with a good bit of the biblical material. And I, I believe that there's grace in the law, and I believe that the law was filled with upholding the weaker person in the exchange. But I also believe that there are rules in grace. And so that the Bible doesn't switch gods in midstream. In fact, there's a question you have to ask if you come up to the conclusion of the many people on the web that will tell you that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New. Is the problem God? Is the problem his ability to communicate? Or maybe I'm not understanding what he's saying. Those would be my options, right? Now, another common disconnect that happens, I think, is that we disconnect the Old and New Testament in general in terms of its volumes. There is a mistake in your Bible. All of you have it. It is a page that is at the beginning that was inserted there and another page two-thirds of the way through the text that says Old Testament, New Testament. Those came from a, a, a scribe who honestly believed that Old Covenant had to do with a set of books and New Covenant had to do with a set of books and the Old has been done away and replaced by the New because the Old was lacking and the New is better. But when God said in Hebrews that the Old Covenant was in need of a complete refit, he was talking about atonement law, not books of the Bible. And if that's not true, then all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, and instruction, and righteousness is flatly untrue. So I am no more a Colossian or a Corinthian than I am a Jew in the desert. None of that was written to me, but it was all written for my benefit. And since the first two-thirds of that Bible was largely written to my older brother Israel to identify how God worked in him, I don't simply toss it away for a new and improved version. And what happens is when I make that kind of disconnect, it's easy for me to hear statements from people like, well, that's in the Old Testament. As if that somehow excuses me. Now, having said that, later on, I'm going to make the point that I'm not asking you to kill a goat to make God happy, buy a keeper, and try to be a play Jew. I'm not doing that. God has something for my older brother, and it's not the rule he has for me. But it doesn't mean I don't learn timeless truths of a changeless God by observing what he does for my older brother. It's that I have to know who I am. That's why identity is so critical to your understanding of the Scripture. So in the next few hours, I want to attempt to connect the messages, both of the Hebrew Scriptures and the apocalyptic literature in the New Testament, and I want those to be seamless because the Old Covenant and New Covenant were access agreements to God, not books of the Bible. And although your access to God has been changed from a bring my sacrifice to an altar and watch the blood come from the Lamb to a one-size-fits-all sacrifice called Messiah— we still are under a sacrificial system. We're still under that system. It's that we're under a system that has been modified by the work of Jesus, and we trust in his work alone for everything that we have in standing before God. Now, having said that, as a Bible teacher, I believe the answers are going to become clearer to this question. 
can understanding the prophets actually help me walk and grow in Christ and grow my testimony, especially when times get difficult, can I get to be a better Christian by understanding prophets that weren't even talking to me? And I think the answer is resoundingly what Paul wrote to Timothy. Yes! When you study the scriptures, Tim, most of what he was studying wasn't written in the church age. But those are profitable for doctrine, reproof, and instruction. And almost every time Paul argues something tough, the position of women in the church, that's not tough, right? He does it and he says, we do this because of the law. Well, if you did away with the law, then what's the basis of your argument? But Paul's point is that God revealed in the legal structure and argument of the Hebrew Scriptures what he cares about, how he feels about things. And honestly, a hundred million million years from now, how God feels is the only thing that's really going to matter. Because the rest of our fleeting feelings will go by the wayside. So I believe that it's going to become clear. Now, our approach for clarity is going to take on a couple of steps. And the first one is going to be trying to set in the context the story of the prophets. I personally believe that if you can tell a story, you can hold an audience forever. It's a great, st I mean, Garrison Keillor, come on, do we have any other fans of Garrison Keillor? Anybody who can start and tell me a story about something stupid and make me listen for the next 20 minutes? I laughed, I cried, it moved me, Bob. You know, it's amazing how, they, how that works. But the context of the story determines much of what you're trying to say about the story. And so I'd like to put the, the individual prophets into a frame so that you don't feel like they're just grousing when we talk about Ezekiel, people tell me about the weird stuff. The guy is the guy's taken off into captivity. He gets to be 30 years of age. He should have graduated from seminary and started his priesthood then. He had a young wife. He desperately wanted to work in a temple that he couldn't see because he's in captivity by the uh, Habar River uh, over in Babylon and he can't get anywhere near the temple and he loves the idea that he would be a priest. If I was back there, I'd be a priest. And he marries a beautiful young gal and he loves this gal. And God tells him to do some weird things. Lay on your side, 390 days. Flip now, 40 days on this way. And and even his wife's got to be saying, Zeke, are you sure you heard that right? I mean, come on, buddy. This laying around on the couch for, I, this can't be the thing. And let's not even talk about lighting dung and making breakfast. I mean, come on. He's got all these weird things he's got to do. And so you're sitting there and you're reading this and you're going, what am I doing with wheels in the sky and God showing up? And this is a love story. This guy loves his wife. It's a 48-chapter book. Cut it in half. At 24, his wife dies, and God says to him, you're not allowed to mourn. But I love my wife. Don't mourn. God, you don't understand my feelings. Not relevant at this moment. Your ministry is to stow your feelings and just stand there. Don't just do something. Stand there. Anybody else struggle with that one? And here's the bottom line. The second half of the book, God takes the wound of this man because that was the day the temple fell back in Jerusalem, but he didn't know it when his wife died. Does God have the right to take the things most precious to you in order to prepare you for the next 
phase of ministry. We all want to say, well, sure he does, and we all want to say, no, he doesn't. The earliest book we have in the Bible is Job, and that's the subject. It's not suffering. It's does God have the right to put me in whatever soup bucket he wants? And is he still God here when he does? So ultimately, we're going to try to set some context. Now, beyond the context, you also have to get the content. Because honestly, what you don't know can't help you. Okay, so honestly, I, 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 a lot of times I'm dealing with people who go, I absolutely fundamentally believe the Bible. And I say, do you believe Zechariah 3? And they say, what's in it? And I say, it's not relevant. Because if you believe it, you believe it before you know what's in it. But on the back end, if you've been a believer for 35 or 50 years and you still have a whole blank zone in your Bible because you're not sure what to do with it, you're missing key ingredients because God said this is the irreducible minimum of what I want you to have to be able to tool up and do ministry and grow. So content matters. Now, obviously, I'm also a product of this generation. So application also matters. I was looking for a picture for application, and because of what I've been doing, this looked like applying something. So this is application, okay? And the whole idea is that I want to take hot words drawn from the coals of the fire at the altar of God, and I want them to touch my life from my older brother Israel's example. I want it to be fleshed out in me, and I want to learn as much about my father and understand as much about him as I possibly can. And the only way that going to happen is if I take the context, pour the content, apply it into situations I'm looking at and say, does this work? Can this work? God, how you worked before, will you work that way yet in me? So some part of what we're going to do is application. Now at this point though, we have to consider that there's a warning. Some people are going to be tempted to make all the rules and restrictions and everything that we read about in the Hebrew scriptures, a one-size-fits-all, God wants every believer of every age to do it this way. I fundamentally believe that God works differently in different ages, and that what God told me to do is different than what he told my other older brother Israel. I don't believe that by keeping a set of laws, I'm going to bring a new Israel into America. I don't believe that killing a goat is going to make God happy. I believe that God told me things so that I can be what I'm to be, but I'm supposed to see them as examples. I get this, by the way, because in Acts 15, when they got to the Jerusalem council, they didn't say, all right, now we got the message of the gospel. We got Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ. Everybody needs to go to catechism and learn to be a Jew. They said, no, look, we're not going to tell the Gentiles to do this, and we're not going to tell the Jews to stop. So a church dinner became a problem because half of them are kosher kids and the other ones are pig-eating pagans that met Jesus. And now what do you do when you put them all together in a church dinner? Well, social distancing, I guess. I'm not really sure, but I can tell you that there's a warning that we can hear timeless truths and somehow try to make it. You have this happen in a local church. This happens right here. Somebody comes out of a terrible background, let's say with with, with drugs, and, and they, they come to Christ, but they associate their lifestyle with a certain form of music. And so they believe that God told them to put away all of those old albums and songs because they go with a, a past life that has been buried in them. They then begin to teach you that all of you should go and do likewise. So they want to judge 
using the standard of what God has spoken truthfully in their own heart. They're doing it out of love and compassion. They're doing it out of a move of the Spirit of God, but they're doing it inappropriately because they're trying to make you live by a standard God gave them. And that's an ugly thing to do, and it happened in the first century often. Okay, we should also make sure that if we're going to talk about the prophetic books that we actually, you're not supposed to be able to see all that. I'm, don't, don't, like, I can't read that, but don't worry about it. It's the impression of it that I was looking for. What I want you to understand is that when we talk about the prophetic books, most Christians refer to the books after Isaiah and before Malachi, including Malachi, as prophetic books. The back end of the Old Testament, if I can say it that way. And these writings record messages of God to Israel and to Judah, between about 800 BCE and 450 BCE. And the whole idea there is most of the messages are divided the same way. You can take almost all the prophets. Take Isaiah, for instance. You got 66 chapters, 1 to 39, bad stuff, 40 to 66, good stuff. Okay? Or 1 to 39, condemnation, and 40 to 66, consolation. It's another way of saying bad stuff, good stuff. It's just putting it on a higher shelf. The idea is, usually God gets tough, then after the spanking, you're standing there with the quivering lips, and then he hugs you, and he brings you back, and he lets you understand, it is not out of hate, it's out of love that I discipline. That basic idea of bad stuff followed by good stuff is kind of the overview, but the Hebrew uh, uh, um, uh, the Hebrew version of the Bible is actually divided quite differently. In Hebrew, when you use the term prophets or prophetic books, you have the, um, the Nevi'im, the prophets, Nevi'im, Rishonim, the early prophets, and those include uh, people like uh, Samuel and uh, Kings and Joshua and Judges, and you got to be asking yourself, those don't sound really prophetic. Well, hang on a second. Those are the early prophets. Joshua judges Samuel kings. We get first and second later because of publishing. That's a different thing. Then you get the Ahronim prophets, the later prophets. The latter prophets usually fall into major and minor, and this is as intelligent as it gets. Big books are major, small books are minor. It's all about the size to, to fit into the scroll. That's really what it is. So you have 12 of these minor ones that are put together to make scrolls. And then you have big books, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, that are bigger books. And Lamentations, by the way, get snapped on the end of Jeremiah just to kind of bring it out and leave you on a, you know, appropriate super low note after five. There's no pain like my pain songs, you know, um, which kind of gives it to you. Um, look, the, the, that should probably tip you off to something. If Samuel and Kings and Joshua and Judges are part of the Nevi'im, the prophets, they got to be saying something different with the word prophet than we use it for. Because in vernacular English, prophet generally means he looks into the future and he can see that which is beyond the mist. The rest of us are sitting there going, we don't know what's going to happen. He knows, she knows, they can see it. But for the Hebrew, the prophet, the word seer or prophet, navi, is the idea of a person who gives God's view of the news. It's Walter Cronkite from God. I want to put some of you are sitting there going, who in the world is that? Back before the wheel. <laughs> Never. Uh, here's the thing. It's how God views what's going on in the past, present, or future. You can be a legitimate prophet and never say anything about what's going to happen. 
The only thing you're going to talk about is why yesterday happened. Now, I can tell you I am not a prophet. I, I really am not. I, I spent seven years of my life building a full-size replica of the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness, and I was doing it just south of Jericho in Israel. And I opened the day the uprising began, which means I am not a prophet. They cut the ribbon as the sound and the echo of AK-47s began in my background, and that was the end. It killed everything I was doing for seven years. I had goat hair and pizza parties to, to, to weave that thing for two years. We lived with an itch of goat hair all over my house because I, there were 500 naked goats walking in the Judean wilderness just because of that tabernacle. And here's the thing, no matter what we did, we still couldn't get tourists to come as soon as they parked a tank next to it. I don't understand, right? By the way, if you go to the Lyot Encyclopedia of the Bible and look up tabernacle, all the pictures are of that tabernacle. They never asked me, but they came and took pictures and put it in their publication, and that's the way it is. Now, here's the thing. A lot of, a lot of prophets, when they're giving God's view of the news, will open with words like, this is what the Lord says. So when you're reading the beginning of, let's say, Amos or Habakkuk or uh, uh, Zephaniah, and you're going to see, this is what the Lord says. Here's the Lord's view. What they're saying is, and now the news from God. And you should be picking up that this formula became a normal formula for people to be tipped off that I'm not trying to give you my insights into what's happening because experts in ancient Israel and Judah were like experts on television today. You can find one that'll say left, the other one will say right, and they'll both think they're absolutely right and just yell louder. This has been going on for, you know, ad infinitum. Here's the bottom line. The Lord says, means everything you're about to hear, I'm not explaining to you, I'm just telling you what I was told to tell you. There was a day before editorial became news where the news person actually reported what happened, not how you should feel about it. So much of what you're reading in the content of the prophets is not how you're supposed to feel. You have to supply that in application. The text is just to tell you this is what God says. This is going to be bad, and you're going to experience it's coming to a village near you. And how you feel about it is not where he spent his time, but we're so used to the news being so wrapped and ensconced with feeling that we start trying to bleed, how does Isaiah feel about his message? I'm not sure he always even understood everything he was saying. I think he was telling you what he was told to tell you, and he faithfully executed his office. Some of them had to do some weird things. You know, we talked about 390 days on your left side uh, to talk about Israel and Ezekiel 4, and then, we, and then uh, 40 days on your right side, and, and, and laying around, okay, that's weird, but Jeremiah had to put on a wooden field yoke over top of it in Jeremiah 27 to try and talk about the waffling power of a foreign ruler. Uh, Ezekiel is drawing pictures of Jerusalem on bricks and then showing you what's going to happen in a coming attack of the city, or, or, or Hosea's got to go out and marry a prostitute you know that reminds me of probably my worst moment in preaching seriously i i don't think i'll ever forget this i i, I you know how you're you're in the middle of teaching and you just lose track of what it is you're really trying to do because something jumps in your mind you know what i'm saying it just happened to me just now 
And I, so I get up and I'm, I'm introducing myself to the Fort Lauderdale Church the first week I'm there and I'm saying, you know, God has been so good to me and he has really used his word in my life and, and, and he's given me this great family. And then I went right into Hosea. Now, Hosea married a prostitute. <laughs> and everybody's looking at my wife like, you know, he's just really let the cat out of the bag. And I totally missed it. I mean, they're laughing all the way through the first half of the sermon. And I totally missed My wife was mortified. We could have a whole discussion about the Monday that followed that Sunday, but we won't, okay? Still married, so life goes on. Anyway, the point is that he has to marry a prostitute just to, just to show how God feels. See, here's the benefit of Hosea. Almost all the prophets just give you the news. Hosea gives you the responsive feeling of God about what's going on. So God actually did tell you how he felt, but you've got to look for it. He said, this is what it feels like to be faithful and watch an unfaithful spouse. And when he does that, he's doing it from heaven's perspective. Now, because of all the, con uh, the context of each prophet is their own, what, here's my problem. My problem is when I study the prophets, and some of you I know if you were honest would say this, you get halfway into reading prophetic books and they all sound like the other prophetic books. Halfway in, you're just hearing fire and brimstone, and then it becomes wah, 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 wah. And it sounds like the adults in a Charlie Brown, you know, cartoon, because you can't hear it anymore, because you're just going, God's breathing fire. Everybody's going to die. It's going to be horrible. Let's go eat lunch. And the problem is, without the context of what those prophets are doing, they sound like echoes of one another, but they're not. So let me see if I can offer you a really stupid story. And in the stupid story, maybe we'll understand how to cut these prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures into their requisite part. Where do they fit in history, and how do they not all get blurred together, is my point. Now, to do that, we're going to look at how God is going to share, through the shadow of a series of prophets, a message that is hazy, it's foggy, and with progressive revelation, it's my belief that things should get clearer with greater content. Now, can I just say, that's in contradistinction to modern news, where the more you watch, the less you know. How many of you understand what I just said? We're not lacking content. We're lacking truth. We get lots of volumes of information, but the enemy has already figured out the way to get us all bum-fuzzled looking in the bright lights is to give us so much information. It started with AT&T. If you work for AT&T, forgive me. But seriously, do you remember when you used to get a phone bill and you knew what actually was on it? And then they thought, for full disclosure, I'm going to turn your phone bill into a novel. And you began to get 48 pages in number four font. And at the end, of, I have a PhD and I can't tell you what's on my phone bill. And all I can tell you is I have over-informed and undereducated. Welcome to modernity. So in the Bible, what you see is through the core of the fogginess of the message, greater amounts of information should get clarity, not just overburden you with information. Let me say it another way. I'm going to cut right through it. God doesn't waste words. And when you read the prophets, you're going to start off believing he does, but he doesn't. If he said it, there's a reason he said it. And like a doctor that's sitting there, if the oncologist is going over your report, none of the things he says are not weighed against liability claims and a careful understanding of what could or could not happen. 
So listen carefully to the specifics of the word. Now, let me tell a story. When I was a kid, I, uh, how many of you are from the pre-air conditioning advent? You were born in an era that didn't know what air conditioning was. Or your dad put the window down and he tried to convince you that was it. Um, here's the thing. Uh, do you remember those summer nights when they would send you to bed and because the sun sets late in the summertime, it would feel like you went to bed at like, you know, 4.30 in the afternoon. You didn't, but it felt like that to you. And it wasn't air conditioned. Well, my brother Russ and I, we would be sent up to our room. We had these bunk beds, and this is not us. I just was looking for kids in bunk beds. But um, we'd be sent up because this is a lot nicer than anything I ever lived in. And, and, and we're sent up to this, to this room. Now, we're in the second floor of a house that has no air conditioning in South Jersey, not far from the Delaware River. Uh, humidity 97 percent um, heat 92 to 94 degrees uh, probably f give it a bump of five more degrees up because it's the second floor of the house and everything that was cooked for dinner you know all that heat went up and we're sent in there now th what happened was and I, I can't tell you all of it because I was young and I don't remember a lot of my own life but um, I, I, we got up there and we were laying in bed and I remember like there's sweat like dripping off of us and then my brother would make a joke and I would laugh and I would make a joke and he would laugh and then we would start and we would start messing around with you know and all of a sudden I don't know how something got broke <laughs> and it would make a loud crash and my dad would yell from the bottom of the stairs knock it off up there or I'm coming up there with the belt and I'd be like ah well now this would be what I would call the initial warning stage in the initial warning stage, there are two brothers, they're both there, they both know that the peril is equal to the two of them, and there is a speaking of their father concerning the impending peril if they don't knock it off. However, being the children that Russ and I were, and the adults that we are now, both in ministry and both ornery, uh, we didn't stop. And so as a result, we would continue to do something. You know, my brother went down the hall. He came back. He spit water on me. I had to go down the hall, come back and spit water on him. Uh, we're going back and forth to the bathroom. Dum, 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 I wonder how my parents knew we were awake. And by the end, we got water dripping all over the beds, and we're all kinds, in all kinds of trouble. And through the door comes my father. <laughs> you know and we're like scared to death and he grabs my brother by the pajama shirt that appears to be choking him as he drags him out my father's with Jesus you're not going to lock him up so I'm going to tell you how it really happened and they drags my brother and out the door he goes and now I'm sitting in this room dripping wet with the stuff my brother spit all over me sitting on the edge of my bed wondering if my dad is sawing my brother up in the basement or beating him or what could be going on and while i'm sitting there i'm reflecting in my mind that if i don't knock it off my dad is gonna have to deal with me too but then i got distracted because of the kind of kid i was and so i would start you know playing with models and and I was doing stuff and then something fell and something broke and I don't know how it happened and all of a sudden through the door comes my dad and I'm thinking it was a great life and this is the end of it and I thought I would have more time to leave my mark 
So he grabs me by the back of my pajamas. Out I go, down the hall, around the, into his bedroom, the parents' bedroom. Now, we were never allowed to be in our parents' bedroom, ever. If you were there, it's because you're in trouble and dad put you there. And as I would be dragged in, I was sat on the bed, and I was wondering whether meat hooks were coming out or what would be the next thing. And I look, and lo and behold, my brother is lying there on the rug over next to my parents' closet. And I'm thinking, is he dead? (laughs) And he's not dead. He's asleep. And my dad says, look, I put you up here over an hour ago And I am tired of coming up and down these stairs. Now, I took your brother out because I thought maybe if you were alone, you couldn't keep making noise, but obviously I was wrong. So I went from a time where there was an initial warning to one of them being taken to a time when both of us were sitting there in the soup. And my dad woke up my brother, grabbed us both, brought us back into our room and said, can you please now, get back to bed, and this time, go to sleep. Because I don't want to deal with this more. I want you to do what I asked you to do. What that is, is the division of the four four times of the prophets. Now, that stupid little story will bother you. It was designed to bother you. And It will bother you because at the end, these four stages of the Hebrew prophets help delineate in my thinking why they're not all saying the same thing. It's when they said it that tempered how they said it. Now, I'm going to make an attempt to put their stories on this chart, and I'm going to do it in just a few minutes. And my hope is that in our Uh, operation of this we're going to do kind of an opening of an old law and order these are their stories dun dun okay so what i'm going to do is give you a break because you've been really good about sitting there we're going to get up move around we're going to come back and then try to attach the books where they go on these four blocks and see if we can't give you some details about them okay let's take a five minute break try to keep it under you know 10.
All righty. Hey, by the way, I saw a number of people kind of uh, go out the back doors or out the front. That's way to get the mask off, get a few gulps of fresh air. That's good. A walk around a bit before you um, sit back in those uh, super comfortable chairs. So thanks, thanks. I know thanks for wearing masks in here. Uh, that's what we're doing right now. Uh, but it doesn't cover our ears. We can listen well. And so thank you very much. I don't want to take up any more time as I hand things back to you, Randy. in each box and the first seven of the prophets actually work out to be in what I'm calling the divided kingdom period or DK not Dairy King you know to compete um, it's uh, the seven books that belong in that first box are all there's look there's 19 kings that sat on the kingdom of the north um, for 206 years of separation between the north and south king kingdoms 19 kings in the north, 19 kings and a queen in the south. In the north, they were consistent. 19 of 19 were bad. Which you got to give them points for consistency anyway. And the point is that everything that addressed what was going on up north was appreciably worse in content than what was going on in the south. Both were defiled. Both were trying to work out their world view in a different way. Let me stop here and say something political. Are you all ready? They're all perked up. Whether Republicans or Democrats win in November are two different flavors of rebellion in our current system. I'm not making them equivalent in where they are on the rebellion spectrum on a variety of issues. I would not do that. You would not do that. But let's get off the page that salvation comes from a political party. It doesn't. We already have a savior. And he's not running for anything. And the hard part about it is that, yeah, people always walk around, oh, I've got to choose lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus is running, that is always the case. Okay? So the question now becomes, where do I put my hope, not where do I put my vote? Ladies and gentlemen, I am a faithful citizen. I vote, I write my congressman, and I do none of it to make the outcome what I want it to be. I do it to be a faithful steward of what God put in my hands for the, my generation. But I am not under the impression that either side is going to call me and ask my opinion. They don't care. And one of the great lies of Satan in this era is that our opinion matters. It doesn't. They ask me for my opinion, but they're not listening. I know this because I write to my senator and he writes back to explain to me why his vote was smarter than my idea. And I go, okay, but I just wanted you to know that biblically speaking, this is where I stand. So I'm off the page of feeling like the mechanism of the vote is my control on making God do anything. It is my statement of faithfulness. It's my stewardship of citizenry. But the results belong to God. Faithfulness is my job. Fruitfulness is his job. 
So I'm not worried about whether it becomes what I want it to become as much as whether or not I do what I'm supposed to do. Because one of those I become a victim of and the other one I can control. I can be responsible to get up and do right, but I can't necessarily say that doing right means you get right. Ask Job, he did right and got wrong. So that baby formula can't be the formula I operate on. God is God and he's not running for anything. He's God in a room full of atheists. He's still God. And so I live for an audience of one because that's the evaluation that's going to matter. Now, having said that, let's go to the prophets for a minute and say there's 206 years of separation between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom is just bad, followed by bad, followed by worse, followed by really bad, followed by you can't even believe it, followed by wow, we're not even going to talk about how bad this is. And early on, God raises up some seers, some verbal prophets, Eliahu, Elijah, Elishiahu, Elisha, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. And then, just about the time on the world scene, publishing becomes a thing, God uses it to begin to record the messages of the prophets. And the very first one that he records in my telling of the story, and by the way, all of this caveat, we don't know 100% of this, this is the best I can do to tell the story. Yours may be a little different, and I'm okay with that, okay? Obadiah, I think, is the first one that comes up. And he's sent at a time when Edom, or Edom, has been treacherous because there's been Philistine and Arab raids against the northern kingdom, and uh, against the southern kingdom. And, and when, when the southern kingdom was in the middle of defending themselves, there was a turncoat. Edom actually had an allegiance and then switched sides in the middle of a battle. And because the, the people of God had trusted their allies and they trusted their experts and they trusted their defenses, they thought that they were okay and then they were shafted. And God said, just as you did to my people, so shall I do to you, Edom. Now, what is that? Very first book, Reasons Why Nations Fail. That's what Obadiah is. And it's don't trust your allies, don't trust your experts. They can wheel out people in lab coats, that doesn't mean they're right. Don't trust your defenses. Don't brandish your new weapons and say, I am okay. Trust God or be worried. Bottom line. By the way, Edom is dust, just like God said it would be. Followed by another prophet. This one came right after a plague of locusts in the 800s BCE. In the wake of a national disaster, when things are falling apart, the prophet warned Judah that vast destruction of the locusts that had come through, the one different kind of locust after another different kind of locust after another different kind of locust, that was all a portent of things to come. And he said, Joel said, I want to tell you about the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord becomes a catchphrase. It's picked up in Obadiah, it's moved to Joel, and it is a protracted period of time that basically comes down to this statement. It may take thousands of years, but I have the end already worked out, signed God. All of what's going to happen is already worked out. I'm not doing this on the fly. Why? Because when a plague of locusts followed by a plague of locusts followed by a plague of locusts followed by a plague of locusts has left everything you care about ripped apart, you start wondering if God is making it up as he goes along. And God says, no, the day of the Lord should underscore I know exactly where I'm going with this. 
we could take some time and take that book apart. It's a fabulous story of how God is going to bring things to pass. About that time, in the 800s BCE, there's a rising power in the Neo-Assyrian kingdom, and its capital, going through a renaissance, was Nineveh. And God sent another prophet. But the prophet Jonah, the third of our seven prophets of this box, is not like any other prophetic work. Jonah is not technically so much a prophetic work as it is a biography of a person who was absolutely the poster child for prejudice. You have to read the fourth chapter before you understand the first chapter. Because in the fourth chapter, God, after he relents and the people repent in Nineveh, has to deal with a pouting prophet who's sitting on a hillside who says, I ran away. I knew you were going to save him if I told him. And frankly, I wish they would just go to hell. I hate them so bad, I didn't want to give them the message. My disobedience came out of my hatred. Stop. Listen carefully. You will not reach people if you do not love people. And ultimately, when the church gets itself charged up by tribalizing and making you angry at groups of people, you no longer love them as individuals, and it is individuals that are reached with the gospel. Do not get caught in identity politics in the church. Identity politics is all about putting people in groups. Jesus died for each individual. You are, at the end of the day, an individual, not a group. Our founding fathers structured it that way, and it is being eroded intentionally. Don't join the party. Refuse to join. You mean I might have to reach a person whose lifestyle is absolutely in opposition to the gospel? Well, yeah. You, you think when Jesus walked through Capernaum, anybody was doing it right? No. The Son of God reached across the aisle all the time. Sitting in with the disciples was a tax collector, Matthew or Levi. And over here is Simon the Zealot, who's got a bumper sticker on the back of his chariot that says, Make God happy today, kill a Roman. Or at least don't pay taxes, circle line. And what's not in the Gospels is the discussion between Levi and Simon. You know why? They waited for Facebook. Because <laughs> that discussion isn't essential to the Gospels. Listen, listen to me. I, I know I'm stepping off, but I, I, I just implore you to listen to me for a minute. Philippians chapter 4 opens up with a series of things Chuck Swindoll used to say. These are things everybody wished they had, but they don't really have, but they'd like to say they did. And it says, I want Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind. This is how you stand firm in your faith. And he begins to tell the story that you as church leaders would build reconciliation so that when people fell apart, they were able to come back together and that they would rejoice with their voices over and over and over and that they would be prayerful about everything and that they would think on these things. You remember the passage, right? Listen, the foundation of the church cracks when we are no longer able to even stand together and be of the same mind on the things which make our testimony. So if the enemy can pit, you got to be a Christian to understand this. If we had a convention of, of 80 things we all agreed on and one thing we didn't, the convention would be about the one we didn't agree on. 
Because we never have so many agreed on so much and disagreed on so little and done so little about it. Because we're busy telling our opinion. So here, I would tell you that not only is Obadiah followed by Joel, but followed by Jonah, which is a wonderful study in how we can get so prejudiced we don't even care about the people we were called to reach. And then, right on the heels of that, there is Amos. About 750 B.C., he's a fig pincher from Tekoa. He does prophecy in the off-season. But uh, in the on-season, he actually pricks the bottom of figs, causing insects to impregnate the figs. Uh, causing you to get fig newtons. It's a, it's a process. Anyway, the important thing is what he does is he, he does a classic Middle Eastern way of telling a story. Now, I'm going to risk something here. I'm going to be vulnerable for a minute. Some of us have married people that speak like this. Okay? Um, they don't get to the point they do this. follow the yellow brick road, follow the yellow brick road, <laughs> you know, and finally they get to a point, right? Amos does this. He starts off with a series of, of nations around Judah that have impacted Judah negatively in a zeroing in, if I can use a World War II term, zeroing in on Judah itself. And so six different nations are called to judgment because of the way they have impacted or infected the people of Judah. And then finally, God bears down on Israel and then bears down on the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's all about, look, I'm serious about how I feel about these things, and it's not only what my children are doing, it's what you have trained them in your systems around them and pressed them into a mold. If COVID has taught you anything, it's this, that there is a mold the world wants you to be in, and they're going to be disappointed, <laughs> read angry and hostile, if you will not fit their mold. If they want to retell the story of your nation, get on board or get plowed under. We are living in a time when there is a mold that is pressing upon you. And we need to understand that transformation happens by the renewing of our mind in Romans chapter 12. Amos says that Israel and Judah have been pressed into a mold by these six nations around them and they've bought into it and now they are themselves worthy of judgment. And that will be about 750 BCE. Following up on that, the northern kingdom's getting swept away. So we're now at the time of, let's say, Hezekiah. Uh, we're at the time of Tiglath Pileser III, or we used to call him in, in school TP3. Tiglath Pileser III um, and, and Ashurbanipal and uh, Shalmaneser, these guys are wiping out. The Assyrians are flooding in, and they're ripping out the northern kingdom. So we're coming toward the end of this box, and the initial warnings to both of the brothers are meaning that one of them is being eroded and taken away. And right at that moment, right at that juncture in time when Assyria was cleaning the clock of the north, God raises up a triad of prophets. One of them is well known to you because he spanned four different kings of Judah, and that was Yeshiahu Isaiah. And Isaiah will give you a marvelous picture of the problem of why God judges in 39 chapters, and then he will say, stop, wait. The judgment of God is never for his people without an understanding of how he can bring them back to himself. And so he's going to tell you a picture of the Messiah. 
And he's going to introduce to you in very clear terms the messianic promise of who the Messiah would be. And you can't help it. You get to the sections right around uh, uh, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53. And some of you I know have had this thought. How is it that Jewish people could read Isaiah and not see Jesus? Because the reflection of Messiah is so brilliant and so deep and so rich. And we who know Jesus know him to be those, this one. At the same time that Isaiah is, is speaking, Micah is coming. Now, Micah doesn't do it in the two parts that Isaiah does. He does it in four parts. And if you look at Micah, the way it works, it's problem, 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 answer, Messiah. 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 And you can actually take Micah and just lop off the bottom part and get four segments on what Messiah will be like. Or you can just stay on the top part and all the stuff that's wrong with us, but who does that, right? The important thing is that the whole book of Micah is to train you toward there is no human solution to redemption apart from Messiah. You can't fix this politically. Boy, if I could just paste that on every church in America, you can't fix this politically. Because people aren't going to change their politics until their heart is changed. And even when their heart is changed, you then have to deal with their biases because Jonah's still walking around in the church saying, I wish they'd just go to hell. Because he hates them more than he loves Jesus. Look, the objective of the Christian life it's for me to wake up in the morning, invite Jesus to intimately walk through my day every single moment of that day, and end my day with an inspection. Invitation, life, inspection. And when I'm doing that, endlessly, we call that heaven. At the end of your life, you're not going for the gold streets. You're dead. What do you need gold for? You're going for unending time with Jesus. I don't understand why it is that people are yearning for a heaven to be unending time with Jesus when they don't want to spend any time with him now. You want to live your life without him now, what are you saying to him about your future? Start training your mind already to become what it is to be. What I love about the standard of Micah is that the Messiah is the one that is the culmination of the intimacy with God. At the same time, there's one last prophet. He's at the end of the divided kingdom. He's contemporary to Micah and Isaiah. And that last prophet is this prophet that we know as Hosea. Hosea's whole approach is different than every other prophet. See, other prophets were given news to dispense. Hosea was given news to live in drama. He was to live out a set of choices that nobody would choose to, to live. Hosea gets the call to create the seminar nobody wants. And he has to live with the hurt of doing everything he can to reach someone else only to find that you can't make somebody love you. You can't make somebody love you. Hosea is designed to reach the number one ethical question that college campus students ask me all the time when I go out. They will ask me, if God is good, why does he allow these horrible things to happen? That's the number one question I get asked, and I say over and over and over again, Jesus' comment 
as to God's major objective was that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love requires a choice. You must choose him. He did not make automatons, and in making that choice, he opens the door to all of the rejection. The only person that's never been rejected in dating is the person who never asked. Okay? Well, maybe you're better looking than I am, and so you never had a no. But the, the truth of the matter is that those of us who know what rejection feels like understand the Hosea message. And his point is, when you get to the cataclysm of the death of the northern kingdom and it's destroyed, it is because God himself has watched after he has labored to build a vineyard for that vineyard to turn away from him and labored to shepherd a flock to watch the sheep bite him. And he is indignant now. He's brokenhearted. And if you want to understand how God looks at the person who shakes his fist in rebellion, it's not God is not up in, in heaven in some kind of dysfunctional, please love me. He's, you're trading truth for mud pies. You're being terrible and you're going to get nothing okay so we get to the place where the northern kingdom is taken away the older brother's gone and we get to judah alone and now we have three books that set up the 136 years this is about 206 years this is about 136 years and that 136 years was a time of of oppression and transition for the judah kingdom so the northern kingdom is gone the southern kingdom is under oppression it is a smaller version of what it was listen to me carefully I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but we may well be about to pass into this period of time where a nation once thumped its chest as being great and may find its greatness taken away. Listen very carefully because the almighty dollar may not be next year what it is right now. We must be ready. Our hope is not in the ground on which we stand. We're citizens of another kingdom. And we've got to grasp what these prophets were trying to say. One of them is Habakkuk. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, is a guy whose name means hugger or embracer. He's kind of a friendly-sounding guy, isn't he? And he has an incredible message from God. And the message is the message of joy. What is joy? What does it mean to be joyful? Joy in the Bible is the resolute assurance that God has neither lost interest nor the power to deal with my problems. That is, God hasn't lost track of me. I'm not going through this because he doesn't know about it and know that I'm in it. And I'm not going this, through this because he doesn't have the power to deal with my problem. So if I'm in it, he chose it, he knows it. And once I understand this, Habakkuk starts off with a shaking fist against God and says, God, you're not fair. You're sitting on your hands up there in heaven doing nothing and people are getting away with murder down here. Don't you see what Judah looks like? And now a word from your creator. God steps in and says, I see it, I know. Write this down so that a person who's running really fast next to it can read it. That's the read my lips section. Write it down so anybody can see it. I'm going to act. I've got this people. They're off your eastern horizon. You don't see the Chaldeans? I've got to tell you, they're swift. I've got to tell you, they are a machine. They're going to eat your leaders for lunch. You think your judges are corrupt? You're not going to have any judges. 
You're upset about the political parties? I'm about to trash them both. You don't like what's been done to monuments in your capital? I'm going to wipe your capital out. I've got a whole judgment plan coming to a village near you. Habakkuk goes, Lord, aren't we your people forever? You're not going to get rid of us, are you? In wrath, remember mercy? God says to Habakkuk, stand here for a minute. Puts him on a hillside and watches a desert storm. When a desert storm comes from the south, from Timon and Haran, it starts with this, this heavy heat that's like when you open your car door in a Walmart parking lot in the summertime. It's this... And he sees it. And then he starts to see the tents of Kushan and affliction and the darkness of the hiding of God's power as clouds come over and flashing of the radiance of his light and the mountains begin to cleave as the rain falls upon them and breaks them down and the fingers of those mud valleys are going down in front of him and he's watching the raw power of God and he's trembling inside and God says, I just have a message for you. If you're thinking maybe I lost track of the ability to do stuff, I can do stuff. And Habakkuk says this, the end of the book, you know, if the fig tree doesn't give me any figs, if my flock doesn't come in, if my, my stalls are empty and I'm having no kids, if, if there's nothing happening on the farm, if everything goes wrong, yet I will rejoice. The Lord will make my feet like the feet of that wilderness deer that walks on high places. See, he figured it out. I can try to measure who God is by the circumstances. Where I can look at the circumstances and know that my God is on top, beside, beneath, and all around those circumstances. And there's nothing he doesn't know. So if you're wondering when the northern kingdom got swept away, did God know? The answer is yes. If you're wondering if when Judah became a small vassal of what it once was, did God know? The answer is yes. If you're wondering if you can tell God's goodness by your bank book, the answer is no. Your IRA may or not reflect God's goodness because there's other factors. And just about that time, that's about 50 years later as um, we get to, oh, during that, just in the middle of that time of the Judah alone, you get to the time about the 620s and you get to the time of Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is also at the time of Josiah. It's the time of a great revival. And he's going to talk about five surrounding nations that are around Judah and what they're doing and then what happened to Judah as they stopped ignoring the messages of God. Now, here's the thing. When you read something like Zephaniah, it's actually done in two parts. Five things that really tick me off about what my kids are doing Doing. We interrupt this program to tell you that all around them, nations are doing the same thing. And five more things my kids are doing that are making me crazy. And you'll get 10 different things in, in Zephaniah that all tell you about what God says. Serious warnings. If you keep this up, if you keep this up, if you... I'm living in a time where God has given us a tremendous opportunity to see the underbelly of what we might not be doing well in the local church to make disciples that make disciples. Because all of a sudden, the methods we've used since, since, well, the 20th century, the methods we've used to gauge whether a church is doing well, that is, attendance and parking on Sunday morning and things like that, is no longer viable. Guys, let me just be honest with you. 
I, I work right now a lot with a church of about 7,000 people in North Carolina. Wonderful church. Great pastor. And they're online. 7,000 people. Average people, number of people watching, 500 to 1,000. Where's the other 6,000? You already know this. People are being schooled to live without their church and to pull off their Christianity in their home after we've spent 30 years breaking down the patriarch of the family and calling patriarchy horrible. So we neither have the strength of devotion in the home for the father, nor do we have the strength and the backbone of the camaraderie of church. And the confluence of those two things has meant that there's a weakness that hasn't yet showed up. It'll show up in the church just after the government stops writing checks. And then the offerings will get hit. We need to be prepared now that all the ways we measured success are about to fall away from us. The churches are going to be successful or not successful and that it's not COVID. It's that we have to prepare everyone with the word of God by life-on-life discipleship and intimacy to be people who see the goal. The goal is not to win a trivial pursuit contest in Bible. The goal is to have an intimate personal walk with Jesus daily, hourly, minute by minute. That's the goal. And if that's not the goal, then we don't understand Christianity. And I got to tell you, I've been... I'm 58 years old, and I've been in the church for a long time, and that's not the goal that I was told I was supposed to have. Mostly was communicated to me to stay away from the big sins and try to do some good things. Honestly, when I read Zephaniah, what I read are 10 things that God says to his people, you need to be careful about these things. Do you know where they lead you? Intimacy with God. He's been saying it all the way back to the, to the Judah alone period. Let, let me go on and say this. I, I, can't, I, I can't stop ignoring, I have to stop ignoring the, uh, the, the things. You know, the biggest thing that God had to say during this time, because people's hearts were broken, is why I judge. And so he sends along Nahum, Nahum. Nahum's were, his name means comfort, his message was not. It's basically three chapters, and the first chapter is all about why, who I am. This is great. Who I am, and chapters two and three are what that means. If I am the God described in chapter 1, the results are going to be chapters 2 and 3. This is how I'm going to act. In other words, you don't have to worry about the future of tomorrow. You don't know what it is. What you need to do is key into the character of God because that's what's going to tell you when it's Him. I don't always understand what God is doing to you. But what I have been given is through the word, I can know him and the spirit of God, I can know him. And the better I know him, the more that I walk through things with confidence because I know he's not sadistic and I know he's not, he's not angry at me. I know that he loves me. I know that he has a plan for me. I just can't see what it is. By the way, if you think I'm just talking, I'm just watching 35 years of a business I built melt into nothing. I'm not worried. The business was going to melt into nothing when I took my last breath anyway. If it goes out early, it goes out early. I'm not done yet. The fat, until the fat trumpet sounds, I ain't done. And, and so the bottom line is, okay, I don't know what's next, but I know who God is. I know who God is. I got a little girl who walked into a hospital to have a baby five years ago, came out in a wheelchair and has been 
deteriorating for five years. Doctor after doctor, they've cleaned out tens of thousands of dollars over and over out of everything I've had. I spent my retirement to try and get her better. We are none the better, but rather grew worse. God is still God. I'm not just talking here. It's, it has to be in your life to be real. And here's what I'm telling you. God is good. There is nothing I can do but stand back and see how awesome he has been. I serve a majestic and wonderful God, and I don't have a clue what direction I'm going. So here's the truth. Nahum, Nahum said that great comfort comes by understanding the character of God and then looking at what he does as a reflection of his character. And so you end up with the, the Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk uh, triangle, and then we get into the time of the exile. This is a great time. It's the worst of times, it's the best of times. The exile has a picture of three prophets. One of them you know pretty well, that's Jerry. Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah. And, and I already told you, 52 years of watching your nation fall apart makes you sour. And honestly, Jeremiah was given and charged with the time when he went from being the good guy to being the bad guy to being dumped into a cistern to being exiled. He went from being a hero to being a villain. My pastor, pastored for 55 years, before he retired, and at his retirement, I sat down next to him, and I said, Pastor, what's changed in your 55 years of ministry? He said, I used to be the answer, now I'm the problem. He wasn't bitter. He's a realist. He said, the day is coming when you simply will speak a Bible truth, and it will be so offensive to modern ears, they will be unable to hear it as anything but bigotry. Gee, that was about 15 years ago. Can I tell you, the man was a prophet. Now, what I love is Jeremiah does unfold the pain and the anguish, but don't read Jeremiah just as God in pain. It's not. It's God's man in pain. Can I just ask you, read Jeremiah, then pray for your pastor. Read Jeremiah, then pray for your Bible study leader, because people, elders are not like everybody else in the congregation. The people in the congregation can wonder about what's happening, but the elders are supposed to take a step above and see out there. Episcopos, the ability to see around, you're supposed to actually embrace the next thing that's going to go wrong without being sour. You try doing that for a while. You try knowing all kinds of stuff are coming at the church and not turn into a negative Nelly. We're supposed to both be positive and engaged in warnings. So pray for them, because it's not always easy to parse truth and what you see on the horizon and warning and still at the same time be inspiring and uplifting and always happy. I realize that people with a big smile on their face will always pack the room. But let's be honest, media ministries don't make great pastors. They make great orators. And they're, at the end of all that, they're not the guys sitting. I was, I was in a hospital room. It was about 5 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I had been sitting there since Saturday afternoon. It was an 8- or 9-year-old little boy who was dying of leukemia. Now, 
One of the things I should tell you is I manuscript everything I do. I shoot from the hip on nothing. And I had written everything for sermons on Sunday. I do generally three sermons on a Sunday, and they're three different texts. So it's 12 pages, it's 36 pages for the whole Sunday. And that's just my normal typical. I had all done all of it. But I got there on Saturday all the way through to Sunday morning sitting by his bed, and, and this was a young child who was confident to go to Jesus, but this was parents that were angry at God. You, you got the scene, right? I don't have to play this out. I'm trying to represent a God they are angry at. I'm broken for this child. My heart is on empty. Truth? I was absolutely exhausted and emotionally empty. I could give you Bible facts, but nobody wanted to hear them, and that wasn't the moment to do it. And all I can tell you is I, I left there, I went to the church that morning, I preached a message, I can't even tell you what was on the paper in front of me. And then I preached another message on another set of papers, and I can't tell you what was on the paper in front of me. And I got to the back door to be met by a deacon who was telling me about how he was going to leave the church because there was some problem in the bulletin and his child wasn't mentioned on paragraph three, and I wanted to beat him. I was standing there going, I'm going to kill this guy if somebody doesn't get him out of here. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> I need you to understand that when you're dealing with these issues and the power and the weight of these issues, sometimes you go to church and you go, why are people not on the right page here? They're on the color of the carpet and marriages are falling apart. They're unworried about whether we're going to have drapes or not, and, and I'm worried about whether or not we can actually pull off this next thing that we have to do that's, that's going to mean a, a, an evangelical witness to the entire community. Why are you not on the right page? That's Jeremiah. That's Jeremiah. When you get that feeling, that's Jeremiah. Then you'll understand, I'm talking and nobody's hearing what I'm saying. And finally, he goes from being popular for saying it to being unpopular to being up against people who are saying the opposite in the name of a God that they were making up. That's Jeremiah. Now, at the same time, remember that people didn't all go at one time into Babylon. They were taken in three waves. In 606, Daniel was taken into Babylon. In 597, Ezekiel was taken into Babylon. By 586, everybody but the blind, crippled, crazy, they were all taken into, into Babylon. Zedekiah watches his children's eyes be knocked out, and he gets taken into Babylon. And in those waves, Daniel is already in Babylon while Jeremiah is watching Judah come apart. So contemporary to him on a bookend in Babylon, Jeremiah's here, Daniel's there. And Daniel is not in bad shape. In fact, he was cleaned out in the first uh, uh, installation of being taken to Babylon, and he's now prime minister sitting in a good spot. But his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariahu, the, these three guys that we usually call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is their pagan name. I don't know why we love the, that name better, but um, these, these three guys are dropped in pagan you, given the pagan diet, the pagan philosophy classes, and they are told that they are going to be model pagans. And Daniel gives us this brilliant light in darkness theme while he's there. 
In the second wave, after Daniel's already there and he's doing well, there's a young priest by the name of Zeke, Ezekiel. And he's led out in 597 and taken over to Babylon. The whole time, Jerry's over there going, oh, it's bad, it's really bad, life is bad, no one's, nobody's pain is like my pain. Daniel's over here going, hey man, I'm running a nation here, God's still on the throne, things are gonna, and they're both Jews. Now comes a priest taken into captivity with a young wife, Ezekiel. If you look at Ezekiel, you'll see that there are four profound visions in Ezekiel. And the first vision in the first three chapters is this weird, unbelievable vision of God moving on a conveyor of, uh, of a machinery or an apparatus, always facing you, always knowledgeable, but moving on this kind of machine. And Ezekiel's caught up in the machine. I think he's kind of like one of those DIYers, you know? And he sees this thing and he goes, oh, look at that. Look at the way the wheels go with the wheel. Isn't that cool? I go to the mall and I look at how the building's built. My wife's looking at the clothes. I don't care about the clothes. I care about how the building is built. Hey, that is the coolest thing. Did you see how they tied those rafters together? That was really cool. Well, Ezekiel is looking at the machinery, and in the midst of it all, you have to ask the question. Remember 8 through 11, that other vision? I desperately want to be at the temple, and God beams him over to the temple and says, let me show you what I see when I see the inside of the temple. And bugs are crawling on the walls. And it's nasty inside. He says, you think you want to serve in this temple. I want to show you what I see when I see this temple. Here's my point. Ezekiel has the weirdest visions because Ezekiel has the hardest call. You will only ever be able to minister for God at the depth that you understand the deeper your knowledge and understanding of who he is, the broader your vision of how he can use you in a ministry. And Ezekiel gets pummeled with a view of God that is unparalleled in the scriptures because he's about to stand up to every other prophet and say, you're lying about what you're saying. You are liars. God is going to do it, and he's going to do it this way. And as he pr pronounces judgment on the people, he does it with the and then God takes his wife and says, don't cry, don't mourn. I need this to wound you. Now speak and say these words, but you're not going to say them like this because nobody struts in the kingdom of God. We walk humbly before God. And so... You have Jeremiah in Jerusalem, Daniel in Babylon, and Ezekiel making the journey. And those are your exile prophets when everybody's in the soup together, trying to explain a good God in a bad circumstance. And that's what those exilic prophets are doing. Okay, let me just end this by taking you to the post-exilic. That's the PE. That's not for physical education. It's for um, the post-exilic prophets. There are seven last books of the Bible, but you're going to count them up, and you're going to come up with a different number, and it's because some of the books aren't books. Ezra is not a book. It's two books. Ezra 1 through 6 says... We come to the time now, in 538, 536, Cyrus the Mede 
begins to send people back and the, the decree of Cyrus is going to send people to come back from the exile and, and, and in the midst of that there's a fellow by the name of Sheshbazar and another fellow by the name of Zerubbabel uh, these guys are part of the apparatus of the send back of the first wave of return that come from Babylon back to Jerusalem and Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel the scroll of Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel is called Ezra 1 through 6 but it's actually it's distinct from the second part of Ezra. The first part's from 536, the second part's from 458. They just got snapped together for publishing, okay? There's a reason, but it doesn't have anything to do with it being one continuous story. So in Ezra 1 through 6, there's a story about the people coming back. Well, when the people got back, you know, you remember the story of what happened? They got back, and they looked around, and they saw that the temple was falling down, and they also saw that their great-grandma's house was dilapidated. So in the beginning, they went out there and they began to work on the temple, but then they went to great-grandma's house and they thought, well, we could fix this place up. It's an old place, but we could get the ranch cleaned up. And then as time went on, they spent more and more time on the ranch, less and less time on the temple, and finally Haggai is brought. Haggai becomes the prophet where God says, I'm living in a shack and you're living in paneled houses and something's wrong with your understanding of what's going on. You've lost track of your vision. You know, I just, it just occurred to me that I did have slides for this. I had forgotten all about that. Thanks for doing that for me. I'm, I'm just holding a controller, not actually doing anything. So uh, here's what's important. 18 years after they arrive, they haven't gotten the temple done. Now, you have to think like a Jew. The temple's not the building. The temple's the altar. If the altar's functioning, the temple is functional. You don't need the building. You need the altar. You need the killing station, and you need to burn it. If you do that, you did everything you need to do, okay? So the rest of the stuff you can outsource, whatever you need to do, you know, it's, it's not really an issue. So Haggai's trying to get the, them inspired to get the dedication of the temple back up and going. He does this about 520, and he gets paired off with another, one of my favorite prophets in all the Bible, Zechariah, Zechariah. Zechariah and Haggai, 520, 516, these two prophets get together. Zechariah, here's why he's one of my favorites, because some of you are going, why would that be a favorite? If you haven't read Zechariah recently, stop what you're doing tonight and do it. It's that good. Do you all remember there used to be Frank Peretti? Is that name? Do you remember the guy who wrote like This Present Darkness or something like that? I didn't read the book, but I got the idea because my wife read it, so that meant I was practically reading it every night at dinner. Anyway, the point is that, um, you know, he had that ability to kind of peer behind the curtain and tell you what was spiritually going on. That's Zechariah, except for Zechariah's is true, Peretti's is a novel. Um, Zechariah is watching stuff happen, but he's able to pull back the curtain and God lets him see why it's happening. So you get to like Zechariah 3 and Joshua the high priest comes in and he's all bummed out because people aren't really on board with doing the institutional ministry of the temple. It's not happening the way it should happen and he's, he's just, he's discouraged. In comes Zach and then God gives him that curtain. He pulls it back and, and Joshua's standing there in his priestly robe and demons are piling with mud pies. His nice, pristine, white costume of a priest is being dumped on with mud in the spiritual realm. And in, in Zechariah 3, what looked like depression was actually spiritual attack. But the difference was the ability to pull back the curtain. It's such a cool book. 
And the whole book, I mean, you've got angels driving around. You know what's cool about Zechariah? One of the angels yells to the other angel, you got the wrong yardstick. You know what I love? We, we somehow get the idea that the angel in the angelic world, just because they're sinless, it means they always do it the right way. But this guy's going, Harvey, you got the wrong stick. Go back and get the other stick. You're not going to measure it properly with that stick. Two things I want you to remember about that. Number one, whenever you get discouraged about the church, just remember our team is bigger than you see. Two-thirds of the angels stayed with God when one-third peeled off. Our team's always been bigger. It's the other ones puff up. Don't get scared. We have a big team. The second thing I want you to remember, on our team, even in the invisible world, they don't always get the tools right. Why? Why is that important to me? Because I'm looking for a world in which I just think God speaks and everybody's mowed down. That happens in the end, but not in the interim. In the interim, God lets the story be told with a lot of complication that I would have just gotten to the end. But I'm a guy who couldn't watch The Lord of the Rings. I really, as soon as those like demonic looking dogs started, I'm like, give them the ring and get it over with already. Come on. I just can't do the complication that God does in this story. There's a wonderful story. So you've got this, this incredible story of Zechariah and the incredible story of Haggai that's trying to lift Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel and Joshua as they build the temple in 520 down to 516 and it's rededicated. I'm almost done. Meanwhile, back in the kingdom, on the other side of, at Mesopotamia is King Ahasuerus. We know him as Xerxes. He's the son of Darius I. Darius had left and gone from Persia over to Greece and thought he would take over Greece because he thought the Greeks were really nothing. I mean, they had nice restaurants and stuff, but they were not going to really be able to put up a fight. And here's what he learned. Those Greeks are feisty. Darius got beat. He came back. He was humiliated. So his son, the I, or Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, decided, you know what? We're going back to Greece, and this time we're ticked. We're going to kick butt and take names. That's it. We're done. We are done with this. So what he does is he calls together his kingdom for a pre-attack, pre-fight celebration, and it gets out of hand, and he loses his queen. This is about 480. The queen Vashti is deposed, and you have Ahasuerosh or Xerxes, who makes a terrible mistake, but then puts on a pageant to get another wife. Now, what's interesting in the story is he's going to put together this massive, in 483, he's going to put this, uh, this massive attack, and he's only going to find himself up against those 300 Spartans, and he's eventually going to lose at the Battle of Marathon, and by 380, he's going to lose as well. And the story of Esther sits on top of this guy with a bruised ego who was following his dad who had been whooped by the Greeks. And the book of Esther says, God inserts people in specific times for specific purposes because he has something he wants to do. So here's my question. Does God have the right to do that? Does he have the right to insert into your life difficulty and tough circumstances so that he can put you in play. Let me say it this way. God has an emergency room nurse he needs to lead to Jesus. Is he allowed to give you the heart attack to get the message there? Oh, but God wouldn't do that. Really? I'm the God who causes calamities. That's a Bible verse. So here's the truth. Just about that time, Things start to settle down, and another 40 years goes by. In 444, the best 
best book in the Bible for management and leadership comes up, and it's kind of paired with another book. Nehemiah is the book in 444, and, uh, oops, did I skip over Nehemiah? Did I skip it? Yeah, there you go, I was going to say. Nehemiah's there, and he's paired off with Ezra 7 through 10. Ezra 7 through 10 is the book of Ezra, the scroll of Ezra, in 458. Nehemiah is in 444, and he invites Ezra as the senior elder statesman, so those were often paired together in Hebrew, those stories. And here's what I want you to know. The second half of the book of Ezra is different than the first half by many years. First half, 536, second half, 458. And the second half of that book is some of the toughest Bible verses in the Bible. Because Ezra literally had to stand up and divorce people, bastardizing their children. And he had to take a stand that was so unpopular and so heartbreaking because God told him that divorce, that, that marriage never should have happened and could not be allowed. And from that, Nehemiah will come in 444, about 14 years later, and he will find that the same people are still sliding in the same marriages and the same uh, uh, compromises, and he will have to offer in 13 chapters a brilliant look at leadership. Just about after his 52-day wall program to restore the walls around Jerusalem, you end up with then the last of our prophets. And when we start looking at the last of our prophetic voices, my messenger, Malachi, comes at about 400 B.C. And this is going to be the end of God's record of his writing time. But following him are going to be another group of people that will also be scribal in nature. And those, those scribes will leave behind, for instance, the book of Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles is at the end of the Hebrew scriptures in the Hebrew version because it's the Reader's Digest recap of the whole story, starting with Adam and ending with the return. So if you want the quick look at the Old Testament, you just grab Chronicles, it gives you the overview of the whole thing. But that's not the only book that does it. God then removes his hand of speaking through people, but other people keep on writing, and you end up with books like Jubilees, which goes through and reorganizes the Hebrew scriptures in seven-year blocks. And the Qumran scrolls come directly out of this whole, let's rewrite and reiterate the Bible. And they're not God-breathed, but they're human commentaries. And by the way, commentaries go on to this day on our shelves. And that comes out of a movement that was, hey, we've got the Bible, but I got some great sermons that I've collected around it. Let me sell both in the same scroll. And that started all the way back in Qumran and has been going on all the way up until publishers have been opening in Michigan. So it's been going on for the whole time. Let's take a little break, and I want to come back and do something that's really, I think, probably the point of all of this today. And that is this. There is an application for this apocalyptic and prophetic literature. And you're going to be uncomfortable with what it is. If you're already uncomfortable about even your church going into a foray of doing revelation, because after all, haven't you heard, it's divisive. Then the point of these books, the heart of these books, is what I want to talk about in the next hour, okay? Take about five minutes.
Oh, the people out and outside the doors will not hear me, but maybe in the courtyard, grab a snack, grab some water. We're heading into the last hour of this seminar, and kind of a, like uh, Randy said, the heart of it, what are the main themes of apocalyptic literature? I have, I have a false advertising. I said six, but it looks like there are seven. That's right. So that's good. Seven is a great number, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks again for coming. So glad to have you here. So glad that uh, Randy could be with us this weekend. And I just want to put a, a little seed in your thought. If some of you, uh, in your mind, if you could stay a few of you afterwards to help us with kind of uh, uh, disinfecting or cleaning things, that would be really helpful. I'll give that announcement again at the end. But um, thank you so much for those who help with providing water and snacks and just getting ready for this. Appreciate for all uh, the work that people have done. And thanks again to all of you who are joining us online. Have quite a few people viewing. So that is great. So I am going to, as Randy draws, I'm going to keep talking I think he's ready. All right, here we go. I'm hopeful that the four boxes didn't bore you, but gave you a little bit of context. But I want to talk about something I think that is even dearer and closer to our lives, and that is, okay, so what? Now that I have the story of all these prophets and how their life came together, and I know about you and your brother Russ and your misadventures in your bedroom, how does that help me live my walk with Jesus, because at the end of the day, that's why I'm here. Let me suggest to you that there are three major categories. There are seven different themes, but they fall in three major categories. So I'm going to organize seven things under three, okay? And I'm going to put three of them in the first category, three of them in the second category, and one in the third. So there's three kind of bullet points here, three bullet points here, and one bullet point here. These three categories offer me the reason why I believe God hasn't wasted words, and at the center of his heart is apocalyptic and prophetic literature. I say that on the basis and authority that almost one-third of the Bible has either the wrath of God or the end program of God. Now, if it's not important, then God has a stuttering problem because there's an awful lot of that material. So let me suggest that by volume alone, you can't test everything, but let's offer it something. Let me say that the seven themes are divided into these th three categories. And the fir very first category, I believe, um, you know what I didn't do? I'm, I'm forgetting that I have this. My, my seven categories will be divided into these three categories. And the first one is God explained his view of humanity's mutiny. What does mutiny look like? I don't call what happened in the Garden of Eden sin. I call it mutiny. Because sin has now been a term where we go, oh, that's a sin. Like, isn't that unfortunate? Like an honest, unfortunate event. We have managed to take sinful terms like like um, uh, adultery and turned it into he had an affair. 
It sounds like a cotillion, you know? We we stopped, the the powerful words are being removed and extracted in our vocabulary. So the word mutiny is us raising a fist to God saying what Sinatra said very well, I'll do it my way. And the bottom line is that I find that there are three sub-points under that that are each parts of the themes. The first one is he addresses the pride and the eventual judgments of the nations. So I'm going to put in one of these the nations. And by that, I'm talking about Edom for, for the Obadiah record, or I'm talking about Nineveh for the Nahum record, Nahum record. I'm talking about six different countries for Amos, the first half of Amos. I'm saying a major theme is this is what the world does that shows its mutiny, that goes to the very heart of their anti-me, says the Lord. And he says, there's, there's a strong set of messages. Listen, if you don't know what you're not supposed to do, you're liable to do it. So when nations see God will let you do a great many things, but when you do this, he's really... T- By the way, what's the biggest one? Of the things that a nation can do wrong, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 gives you the biggest one. And there you'll find that God says, you can mess with all kinds of sin and I will be patient, but you mess with my children and I'm coming after you. Listen to me. Woe to the nation that decides to turn anti-Christ because you will find God's withdrawal judgment will be upon them. And as you watch your own nation do it, expect God to withdraw the blessing. What does the blessing look like? It looks like financial security. It looks like not only the economy, but it also looks like international security, political security, scientific sense. These things start falling apart because God says, you pick on my kids and I'm going to withdraw my hand. And when I withdraw my hand, I will give you over to what you were if I wasn't restraining you. The second one under this category of God's, um, of, of, uh, God's feeling about humanity's mutiny is the pride and judgment of his own people. Second Peter, well, you know, Peter constantly goes back to the theme that judgment starts with the household of God. Peter is like, listen, guys, as the church goes, so goes the nation. And Peter really does bring that out. But you'll find that the Hebrew prophets already, if you were to look like, uh, you know, at Habakkuk or Zephaniah or Zechariah or Jeremiah or Malachi, all of these prophets are saying, listen, I'm looking at my people. I have a different standard for my people than I have for the general population. Lots of words. Are we all not on that page together? That God doesn't hold the unbeliever living next door to you to the standard he holds you. Why? Because you have a Bible, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have Jesus in you. And, and did you ever get to the place where you were listening to someone tell you a story as a believer and you thought, you ought to know better. You ought to know better. That God's standard in these prophets, whether it's, you know, Habakkuk or Zephaniah or Zechariah, you ought to know better. And in Zephaniah, he'll, he'll play out, you ought to know better. And it's not just smacking them around. It's delineating that the standard God had for the world was different than the standard God had for his own people. Today, we would say for the church. 
The, the third part of this uh, God explaining his feelings about humanity's mutiny is this incredible human sounding heartbreak found in Hosea. The third point underneath of this first box is how does God view the how does God view the mutiny? He views it as a as a heartbreak. Here we need to stop and we need to dial in the rhetoric. God's not angry with the world apart from a heartbreak. Do you know how when your kid does it, it's somehow acceptable? When the neighbor kid does it, it's super annoying. The difference is you love your kid, not the neighbor's kid. And when, when you're upset or angry at disobedience or rebellion, it's different when it's based on someone you are deeply connected to in intimate love as opposed to someone you don't know. Did you ever cut somebody off in traffic? I mean, you didn't mean to. You just did. did you ever, am I the only person who's cut? Okay. Did you ever have someone cut you off in traffic? Did you ever ascribe to them all kinds of ill motives that you didn't have when you cut off other people in traffic? The difference is you know you, you don't know them. And God says, because I know man intimately, because I have an intimate, personal, creative knowledge of you on the subatomic level, because I know everything about everything about everything about you, you have no idea how heartbreaking it is when you raise your fist at me. Did anybody else go through what I went through as a parent when your child got to be a teenager and suddenly you became the worst person in their life? You ruined my life, slam! Do you know how many hours I walked the floor with you in the middle of the night when you were sick? And now the neighbor kid is smarter than me. How did that happen? The heartbreak is a heartbreak of intimate personal connection. I only say this to say that when the church preaches about the wrath of God, it must do so from a broken heart. God is not angry. He's broken. Now, he's not broken to a dysfunctional point. God is still God. He's still powerful. He's still mighty. And this is over when he says, enough. But he doesn't do it harshly. Grace is at the bottom of his being. It's part of who he is. And as he is distinct from all others, we need to be careful about trying to make him into a, an image of something we would fully understand. Okay, let me give you the second box. So I've got what the world does. I've got what the believer does, or the people who should be believers and followers of him. And then I've got how deeply his heart is broken. And all of that's kind of in the mutiny category. Behind that... God outlines a series of remedies or incremental judgments. Very often, believers lose track of the fact that God actually puts in our lives trouble. God authors trouble in the life of a believer to get you to pull back. You see it in the Kings over and over and over. You know, my son, when he was in high school, said, yeah, the Kings, it all sounds like this guy did bad, God squashed him like a bug, let's move on. The next guy did just as bad, God squashed him like a bug, let's move And he missed the sense of it. If you do any hiking and you get up on a ledge 
and you're walking, and all of a sudden, as you've been walking along, all of a sudden you slip a little bit, and some gravel goes off and down the 1,100 feet down that cliff. You know what it does? Wakes you up to, listen, pay attention to what you're doing right here. There's a ledge here, and you're going to die if you don't pay attention to what you're doing right here. So some of the prophetic material is God outlining remedies by letting you know that there are ledges and edges. I'm coming back to this, but I'm thinking specifically of the day of the Lord as it's told in Joel. I'm thinking specifically of Messiah and his rescue as it's told in Micah or Isaiah. I'm thinking specifically of the kingdom promises of God saying there's a right, mankind can actually operate underneath of my work in you. You can pull off on earth walking with me. It can happen. So let me tell you about a kingdom. So those three parts of this second box are as follows. The first one is going to be the day of the Lord. I've got it all worked out. The second one's going to be Messiah and his rescue. Not only do I have it all worked out, but you're going to need help. You're going to need a redeemer. You'll never get there. And the third one is the kingdom. There is a time and place when the king will sit on his throne and I will show you how this can work. So... We have a terrible story of the world and the believer or the people who should be believers and God's heartbreak, but then we have God's remedies and it gives us everything from the day of the Lord to Messiah to thy kingdom come. I'm pushing you through these because they're important. There's a third one. And that third one, did I get it? That third one is a big driving force. It's missed by many, many people when they study apocalyptic literature. God created his word, told us what he's going to do, and he did it all so that he could give us an opportunity to experience his presence, his guidance, as we coordinate our testimony in a darkened generation. Some of the prophets, I'm thinking specifically of Daniel right now, are Daniel's in two different languages, but it's also 12 chapters that's divided one through six in the story, biographical story, except for chapter two, is the biographical story of how to become a light in dark places. If revelation and your study of it does not lead WLGBC and those who study along with you, if it does not lead you to resonate as a light in dark places, then you miss the point of the book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ and the things which will shortly come to pass, not the things which will shortly come to pass. It's not a survey of the future. It's a survey of the future intimately connected to the character of the risen Christ. That's why tomorrow morning, for as negative as I've had to be today, I come back and look at Revelation 1, and it's, it's the vision of the risen Christ. We serve a magnificent Savior. Guys, coming to the end of his life, when he's imprisoned, he's under house arrest, he's waiting to go see Nero. What is Paul writing? I want to know him. When, when Stephen is being pummeled by rocks and he's, and he's literally watching his life's blood flow out of him, he's looking up. What is he gazing at? I want to see Jesus. You're not going to get through dark times if you can't see the character of the one who loves you and saved you. And so John's going to start with, all of this grows out of my incredible vision of the risen Christ. It's the Ezekiel of the New Testament. You're never going to go deeper than the, 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 the breadth with which 